Well, Transit, thank you so much for joining us over the last three weeks for Be Rich. We're so thankful for you. We're so thankful that you stuck it out. And hopefully the conversations you've had at home have been really encouraging. Hopefully the conversations with your small group leaders, well, I'm sure those have been good too. So glad that you've been able to join us. Now, if this is your first time, we want to say thank you so much. Um, we're in a series that we are actually finishing today called Be Rich. And the title's a little misleading. We often think that it's about money. In fact, it's actually about opportunity. The title actually comes from the New Testament as Paul, a church starter, wrote to a young pastor to a, of a young growing church to inspire them to model the generosity that God has shown them. So this is what he writes. This is 1 Timothy 6. Paul writes to Timothy, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud. And we might be thinking, well, I don't feel rich. Did you know that if your net worth, that is your assets minus debt, is about $93,000, you are richer than 90% of the world. If you own $4,200 to your name, that you're richer than 50% of the world. We may not feel rich, but when compared to the world, we are rich in America. And not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. He's like, look, we need to trust the maker, not the means. Because their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. He gives us breath. He gives us skills and abilities. He gives us the opportunity to work. We're supposed to enjoy this life. But the way that we enjoy this life is by enjoying God. We enjoy God. We enjoy life. He says, tell them to use their money to do good. For they should be rich, there's that phrase, in good works and generous to those in need. Always being ready to share with others by doing this. They will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so they may experience true life. The way that we're rich, by giving, serving, and loving. Give, serve, love. First week we learned about giving opportunities. We asked each family unit to give thirty nine ninety five. Now, some can give more than that. Some could give less than that. We felt like it was a middle ground that everyone could, could try to achieve for. So we have two nonprofit partners that we want to give an investment to. We want to give money to them to support them. Beauty for Ashes, which helps women who are pregnant be able to give birth safely. And then also, they're able to get them back up on their feet. So they take care of them and their baby. And then... Transitions for you. They're working with mental health, helping people who have mental health struggles get a job, find a job, get what they need, get the help that they need. So we're happy to be able to support them. Both organizations have been vetted by our leadership, so we're so thankful for this unique opportunity. Now, before we get into what this is going to look like practically of how we are able to give back to our community, did you know that our sort of tagline is loving the Berg? And loving the Berg is more than just a tagline. It's actually a way of life to those who call Southridge home. And like we talked about last week, the, the, the two things we're going to ask you to do don't require any money, but it does require participation. We called it an all-skate. And remember back when the 80s and 90s, we had all-skates. You got out on the floor. didn't matter how good you were. Everyone got out. Everyone did it regardless of their skill level. 
You remember last week how we sort of started off with our why determines our way. Our why determines our way. I've said many times that your why matters, and if you lose your why, you lose your way. See, the right why leads to the right way, and the wrong why leads the wrong way. So the question then becomes, okay, who defines our why? And as we answer this question, we're going to see that there is so much tension around this question in our culture today. Like, nobody wants to be told what to do. See, back in 1776, when America was founded on the idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that was all inspired by the Bible. The founding fathers of our country, they looked at life through the lens of the Bible. So this ideology of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness was actually rooted in theology. Individual liberty was viewed as a God-given right. Well, 245 years later, ideology is no longer rooted in theology. Individual liberty now is viewed as, well, I'm free to do whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it, and with whomever I want. So ideology is man-centered and autonomy is desire. That means I want to be free to be me. I don't want anyone to tell me how to live my life or what I need to do with my life. I want to be free to be me. Yet, theology, on the other hand, is God-centered and authority is received so i'm okay with god making the rules i'm okay with if this is how god wants me to live i believe this is the best way to live so ideology centers on me theology centers on god okay so what i want to do is i want to use this framework again last week we we really opened up the idea that the best way we can serve our community outside of giving and serving nonprofits is by having Christ-centered lives and Christ-centered homes. So last week, we, we talked about what does it look like to have a Christ-centered view on love and marriage. And today, we're going to see that the second way that we can serve is by having Christ-centered parenting or raising kids in a very Christ-centered way. If you're single, you're married without kids, or you're in transit, you're thinking, what does this have to do with me? Well, you're as much as part of this as anybody else. I wish, if I was in middle school and high school, that I heard a message like this. As a church, we have a, the opportunity to partner with parents with modeling how a follower of Jesus lives. So that's why volunteering in our family environments are so important. One of the pictures of the churches in, in, in the New Testament is that the church is a family. So let's look at raising kids through culture ideology. Okay, so let's look at the goals. The goals, what, what goals do we have? Well, we have academics, athletics, and social life. Like, <laughs> I've heard from some parents that when they ask their kid what they want to do, and their kid's like six, and they're like, you know, a six-year-old really hasn't lived. And they're like, ah, you know, I, I want to I work at PetSmart the rest of my life. It's like, What? Because culture has convinced us that kids need to go to college, get a good degree, have that, use that degree to find a high-paying job, wait a couple years before having kids. That's sort of the trajectory of culture. Some of us, when it comes to athletics, we believe that our kid is the next Tom Brady. Some of us, as parents, we believe that our kids need to be popular. Our kids need to be invited to all the parties. Our kids need to be liked by everyone. Like We don't want to be the parent of the weird kid. We don't want to be the parent of the kid that says the weird thing or does the... Uh, says the weird thing or does the weird thing or is the one that's being bullied. No, we want our kids liked by everybody. 
And the how, how do we do this? Is through prioritizing, investing, and sacrificing. We prioritize our kids over us. That's the temptation. That's what happens. Over the last 20 years of ministry, I've received phone calls. I've received a knock on the door of people who've been married for 20, 25, 30 years, and they've said, no more. We're getting divorced. We can no longer do this. Why? Because they put their kids over them. And listen, whenever we ever, uh, whenever we prioritize something over something else, that something else always loses out. Because the something always gets the attention. Guys, we spend hundreds and thousands of dollars so that our kids have something to do. We sacrifice so that our kids don't have to do without. So the why behind all of that is success. We want our kids to be successful. We, we want them to be good at athletics and academics and we want them to be popular. Man, we, we have a desire that, uh, that if our kids are successful, that means that we've done something pretty good and then we are successful. So I don't want you to take this the wrong way because I believe in success. I really do. But success is the wrong why for raising kids. Look, success is often viewed through the lens of culture. And this shouldn't shock anybody. Culture changes. So that means the definition of success is going to change. Success for my parents in the 80s and 90s was different than it is today. See, for my parents, it was providing our basic needs, not finding themselves on food stamps, uh, paying everything on time, and owning their home. My dad was pretty clear that when I graduated high school, that he had prepared me, well, my, him and my mom, had prepared me enough to go into this world. And that's what I did. I graduated on a Friday. I was in Virginia by, by Sunday. I worked full-time. I went to school full-time. And I remember my last year. I remember going in to pay my bill and there was a note that said, I'm proud of you. My dad ended up paying a good portion of that bill. Guys, for some of us as parents, we don't want our kids to fail. We don't. We don't want our kids to fail. We'll do everything for them so they don't fail. Y'all, we need our kids to fail. We need our kids to fail. fail. Failure is a necessary teacher. Some of the most, One of the most loving things that we can do is let our kid fail. Why? Because they need to learn that it is part of the growing process is failing. Then we, we're there with them. We coach them through getting, getting through it. And we, along the way, we shared them our fail stories. Guys, we're not the first ones to struggle with the tension between ideology and theology. Remember a couple months ago, we did a series called Pivot, and we talked about the Shema, which was a confession that most Jews would speak every morning and night. So this is in Deuteronomy 6. This is God speaking in Moses' writing. Listen, O Israel. The word listen is where we get, uh, is from the Hebrew word Shema. And it's the verb that means more than hearing, more than focusing, it means listen and obey. Listen and obey, Israel. The Lord 
is our God, the Lord alone, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands, the Ten Commandments, that I'm giving you today. Love is translated from the Hebrew word ahava, and it means to care. Moses explains to Israel that God's ahava for them could not be earned, could not be deserved, and that God loves them because that's who he is. He is full of ahava. He is loving. He is caring. And so Israel, in return, is called to return this undeserved ahava by showing God ahava, by showing ahava to others. And throughout Deuteronomy, it lays out showing loving care for widows, orphans, and immigrants. You might be thinking, man, there are some people in my life that I'm having a really hard time showing loving care to. Guys, we are capable of showing ahava because we're created in God's image. This means if we're not showing ahava, it means that we don't ahava. If we're not showing loving care, it means that we don't care. See, Israel was to be a light to all the nations as they would go into the promised land And what set Israel apart was their commitment to God, who was the one true God. And the commandments that God gave would give life to his people and set them apart as a light to the other nations, that this way of life was the best way of life, a life under God. So the best way that you and I can model Ahava or that loving care is by committing ourselves to God's word. And then... Moses continues writing what God is saying. Repeat them again and again, the commandments to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road and when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. God was all about the the long game. This was not just for one generation, but for generation after generation after generation. The commandments, the purpose behind the commandments and talking about the one who gave the commandments were to be talked about, were to be the lips on God's people at home, on the road, at breakfast, and before bed. And so Jews came up with this box called a phylactery. And in the box contained scriptures that was strapped to the forehead and the left arm. Orthodox Jews still use phylacteries. Practically, what does this look like for us today? Well, we repeat God's word to our kids. Like none of us are walking around with phylacteries, right? But what we are doing, we're repeating God's word to our kids. That means we need to be reading it and memorizing it. We talk about God's word, who God is, and why he's given us his word throughout the day with our kids. Putting verses around the house as reminders is a really good, of hey, this is what's most important. Before this month, we would do the Upstreet devotional with Brooke. And so, four days, uh, it provided devotionals. And she would get her Bible out, and she would read the memory verse for that day. And what we would do is we would, she was in the floor as lava, and so we would put pillows all over her bedroom floor. And we would, each like rock or pillow represented a word in the memory verse. And she was going through, hopping, jumping, and skipping around, learning the verse. 
we have scripture throughout our house. Um, some days we send her to school with a note based on what we just learned. So it has some application how she can apply to her life. Jenny and I, we're pretty vocal about what God is doing in our life. And during dinner, we talk about God very openly, not just praying, but also talking about God, talking about church, talking about what God is doing in each of our lives. Okay, so as we look at raising kids through theology, we need, we need to answer why before determining what and how. So the why isn't success, the why is legacy. And there's two different things. Legacy and success are not the same. 20, 40, 60, 80, 100 years from now, the most important question isn't going to be, what did my kids do for a living? Instead, it's, what did my kids do with their relationship with God? See, eternity is at stake. Legacy is passing on to our kids a Christ-centered faith. Do they understand the gospel? Do they understand that God loves them, that sin separates them, and the only way to have their relationship with God restored is by believing the death and resurrection of Jesus? Do they understand that? See, as a parent, a Christ-centered legacy is greater than a culture-defined success. The what behind the why is scripture and discipline. Scripture ought to be something that is seen in the house. It's something that they hear us talk about. We're pretty open, Jenny and I. We want Brooke to see God leading our lives. That his way is the best way. We want her to see us praying. We want her to see us wrestling with things. Of course, age appropriately. Then discipline. Discipline looks differently based on a kid's personality and, and, and temperament. Look, discipline is necessary, and it shows that you love your child. God disciplines us because he loves us. Discipline is a good thing that gets us back on track with a life of purpose. One of the things we learned with having Brooke, but also college students live with us, is our responsibility for them. One of the things we learned is that your word has to be your bond. Your yes has to be a yes. Your no has to be a no. You have to make good on your word. If not, discipline means nothing. The how to achieve the why is through presence and practice. Like in, in order for our kids to understand the gospel, we have to let them fail. The gospel becomes personal when we experience failure because the heart of the gospel is that we don't have it all together. You don't have it all together. I don't have it all together. And yet God loves us enough to do something about it. When our kids fail, we need to be present with them embracing them and letting them know that we're right here with them as they grieve through their failure. Y'all, man, the greatest opportunity that we have as parents is to model God's approach to us. And this is especially important for men and dads because here's why. There's a fatherhood epidemic caused by a generational failure in America. According to the U.S. Crisis Bureau, one in four kids live without a biological step or adoptive father in the home. So this means that they are four times greater uh, of a risk for poverty. They are seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teen, more likely to have behavioral problems, more likely to face abuse and neglect, more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol, two times more likely to suffer obesity, two times more likely to drop out of high school. And I took some flack. I took some hits from people when I stood up against the Black Lives Matter movement uh, in June of 2020 because in their mission statement, it talks about eliminating the nuclear family. Look, it's never a good idea 
to disrupt God's design. So I want to quickly say, I, I have so much love and appreciation to our single parents who fight twice as hard to provide and build a Christ-centered legacy for your kid or for your kids. But there is, even from some of you have told me, there is something about having a man in the home. And it does two things. It provides authority and also identity. In Matthew 3, we find Jesus being baptized. During his baptism, God says to him, this is my beloved son and he pleases me. Well, we're not sure if it was a day later, an hour later, a week later, but Jesus finds himself in the wilderness. He is led into the wilderness and he's being tempted by the devil. And the devil starts out by saying this. If you are the son of man, if you are the son of God, he's getting Jesus to doubt his identity. And Jesus overcomes because he knows his identity is who God says he is. And one of the things that dads do, fathers do, because all of us are born with this this desire to hear from our dads affirmation. Who am I? Dads shape that. We have a perfect heavenly father. And you might be saying, well, I don't have a dad. Thankfully, we have, we have a perfect heavenly father. Guys, imagine if we as a church get this right and the impact that we have on our community. In order to love and serve strangers, we need to get right with our family. Look, if we can't get it right in the home, we're definitely not going to get right with strangers. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for being the perfect Father. Thank you so much for being the perfect Father. Thank you for those single parents that are doing everything they can to provide a Christ-centered legacy. And I ask that you give them added strength. I ask that you come through. I ask that there's other people in our church today will come alongside and, and be that male voice in the life of their kids. And Father, I pray for those who are dads and they are not living the way they need to be living. They are not living under your way of life. I ask that you give them strength. I ask that you give them perspective. I ask that they would change the direction of their attitude, of their mind, of their heart. I ask, Father, that you would allow those who are just kicking against your way of life They're fighting against your way of life. They're fighting against your boundaries. I ask that you will allow them to surrender to you. Surrender that your way is the best way. So Father, as we head into this Be Rich season, help us to be rich with giving, serving, and loving. Thank you for modeling all that for us with your deep generosity, your service to us, you serving us, and also you loving us. Help us to model that and reflect that to those you have called us to love. In Jesus' name, amen.